it's lovely to see you and be with you. Um, would you mind uh, praying with me? And we can, we can go from there. Gracious Lord, thank you that you are sufficient. Thank you that you are enough. And thank you that in you we are made whole and complete and have purpose and can live a life to the full. God, thank you that your word speaks to us in each and every season. Would you speak to my brothers and sisters this morning for your glory and for our peace and joy? Amen. Amen. So singleness and sexuality. As we begin to look at the reality of singleness in our culture, and as well as get a vision of singleness from the scriptures, I think it's only appropriate to acknowledge, as Peter mentioned, that I'm single. That I'm quickly approaching 24 years of age and that I've been single my whole life. <laughs> in some ways, I've felt the struggles of being a single in my particular stage of life. I know what it's like to have those awkward and frustrating conversations with friends and family where they ask questions like, and so, <laughs> have you met anyone? Or, surely there's someone on the horizon, there's someone you're interested in, there's someone that makes your heart skip a beat. What's her name? Or, you know, James, you won't be young forever, <laughs> so you better find someone soon before it's too late. I know of the envy and comparison that comes from seeing friends from high school or university in significant long-term relationships, getting married or starting families. I know of the confusion and insecurity that singleness can bring, the questions that can come up. Is there something wrong with me? Am I good enough to be loved? Will I be alone forever? And in some ways, I've struggled being a single person in my particular stage of life. But with that said, I think it's important for all of us to recognize that not all single people are the same. It's important to recognize that the experiences, challenges, and opportunities of single people are different, and that it's largely dependent on their stage of life, their circumstances, as well as their cultural background. For example, the experiences of a single black woman in her 20s, having grown up in Masi, will be significantly different from a single white man in his 40s, having lived his whole life in Musenberg. The challenges of a single student will be significantly different to those of someone who's recently gone through a divorce. The opportunities of a single working professional will be significantly different from those of a retired widower. And therefore, to try and put every single person into the same box would be inaccurate, inconsiderate, and unloving. We want to recognize our different single people here today acknowledge their unique experiences, and there's a call to love them accordingly. But I think it's also fair to say that in a cultural moment like ours, matters of singleness and sexuality are relevant to all singles. What does it mean to be single and a Christian in a sexually obsessed, sexually fueled culture? What does your singleness have to do with your sexuality? What does your singleness have to do with the way you experience and express yourself sexually? Christian singles in our valley today are confronted with questions like, 
does God expect all Christian singles to remain sexually inactive? What does it mean to abstain from sex while respecting sexual wirings? What does it mean to be content in one's singleness while longing towards marriage? And if not sex, are there other forms of intimacy that are encouraged for Christian following, for Christ following singles? Ultimately, the question we're asking today is, what is a biblical vision of singleness and sexuality? And in order to do that, I'd like to firstly look at singleness in our current cultural moment. Secondly, I'd like to present a biblical vision of singleness from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19. And lastly, draw out some brief practical implications for us all. So firstly, singleness in our cultural moment. Did you know that this is the generation that will live as singles longer than any other generation that's ever been alive? Stats SA records that in 2001, the average age of the first-time brides in South Africa was 25 years of age. And by 2019, that number had grown to the age of 33. By the time today's young adults reach the age of 50, one in four of them will have been single all of their life. For some of them, they may have chosen not to get married, but for others, it just wouldn't have happened for them. And rather than producing this deep joy, there's actually a lot of anxiety around singleness in our society, and this anxiety is felt acutely in the church. Anxiety concerning one's place in society or the church. People can sometimes feel like the only ones that really matter or that life only really begins when you grow up and get married. And then you only get taken seriously when you start having children and until then, you're like a junior member in the family of God. Anxiety concerning unmet expectations. Perhaps you've had this thought before if you were single or said something similar. I just never saw my life going like this. Well into my 30s, I just thought that I would be married and have small children right now. But there is no prospect whatsoever of getting into any relationship. Anxiety concerning growing older and losing desirability. As I get older and older and more young people start flooding the market, am I sort of aging out of the category of desirability, particularly in a youth-obsessed culture? Perhaps it's even anxiety about finding and dating someone in this church. It goes something like this. There are not enough eligible people in this church. And if I date someone here and we break up, then what do I do? Do I stick around and wait for someone else? Or do I go to another church that's kind of like this one, where there's a right mixture of solid theology, lively worship, accessible community, but just with a better ratio of eligible guys and girls? If I don't make it here, can I just up and leave and find another community? Singles in our culture and singles in our churches are asking questions like, how proactive should I be in my relationship to God? Or how proactive should I be in my relationships with others, particularly another? Should I use technology? Should I start trying to slide into Instagram DMs or find a suitable match on Tinder? Where does a single person go to find an eligible partner in an increasingly disconnected digital age? Do I have to go to the Brass Bell or the Striped Horse every Friday night trying to find someone? <laughs> Singles are asking questions like, 
I'm so lonely. Should I date or pursue a supportive non-believer? What about sexual baggage and the mistakes I've made? What does that mean moving forward if I ever do get married? Is loneliness going to crush or inhibit me? I don't have the gift of singleness, and I'm burning with desire. Dear God, what do I do? What do we do? And unfortunately, added to these very real anxieties are the cultural approaches and expectations around marriage and singleness that we all experience. Now, Timothy Keller helpfully breaks this down, noting that there are basically two cultural approaches to marriage and singleness in our society. A traditional view and a progressive view. Firstly, let's look at the traditional approach to marriage and singleness together. Now, think with me about traditional cultures. Think about traditional African cultures. Think about conservative Afrikaans or small-town English cultures in South Africa. These traditional cultures make an idol out of the family. Essentially, the traditional idea is it's all about family. You're a nobody until you're in the family. Therefore, in traditional societies, there is great pressure for people to get married and have children because your life hasn't really begun until you get married. Your future is not secure without a spouse or offspring to carry on your family name or legacy. And if you're single, you're seen as a junior member of society. Singleness in traditional cultures are to be pitied, avoided, or simply not an option at all. Single people are somehow viewed as lesser, defective, or unfulfilled. Singleness in traditional cultures carries with it great shame. But this is not the story that the Bible describes. But I do think that this idolatry can find its way into the church, and I think one particular example is worth mentioning. It can be seen in the idolatry of the soulmate. It's the idea that I will never be completely happy, I will never be completely fulfilled, I will never be completely whole until I find my soulmate, my person, the one it's the idea that God has one person and one person only for me, that God created them specifically for me, and that God in his sovereign timing will bring them into my life and everything will be right in my world. It looks like the famous scene from Jerry Maguire where he says to his wife, you complete me. <laughs> to which she says, you had me at a low. The idolatry of the soulmate says, I want someone to fill every vacancy in me, awaken every dormant gift inside me, and continuously enrapture me in otherworldly emotional bliss. And ideally, I'm hoping that they are a surgeon who is intentionally committed to Jesus and community, who cooks and cleans every evening, and he does a little bit of part-time modeling on the side. <laughs> we can laugh. But it's because in some ways it's not too far from the truth. And these unrealistic expectations produce tremendous pressure and distress on you, as well as any other human being who crosses your path. These are expectations that no one can live up to. This idolatry of the soulmate places marriage to the one perfect idealized person as the ultimate goal. And therefore singleness becomes this horrible sort of purgatory this terrible, lonely state that you're stuck in until you find someone to love. But can I just say that that's a lie? 
It's just a life fed to us by Hollywood's romantic comedies, romance novels, and Disney princess films. It's not helpful, it's not biblical, and it's not true. Singleness in a culture like this carries with it great confusion and great pain. But this is not the story that the Bible describes. This is the traditional view. Secondly, would you think with me about the progressive approach to marriage and singleness? Now, this progressive view flows out of Western secular culture, and Western secular culture makes an idol out of individual rights and individual happiness. Essentially, the progressive idea is this. It's all about you. Either marriage or singleness is fine as long as they meet your individual needs and add to your individual happiness. It's all about you. In the West, marriage is all about self, self-progression, self-realization, and self-fulfillment. Marriage is all about me, becoming all that I'm meant to be, reaching my full potential, and fulfilling my greatest hopes, needs, and ambitions. And marriage is just the means to that end. But for many in the West, marriage has become less and less attractive. Eddie Cantor said it like this, Marriage is an attempt to solve problems together which you didn't even have when you were on your own. (laughs) And so increasingly people are asking, why even bother? Why bother when divorce rates are rising, marriage rates are falling, and more and more couples are cohabiting and having kids without marrying? Why bother submitting myself to the constraints of a legal binding contract if love is love? Why bother getting married when I can sleep with any number of people without any sort of long-term commitment. As a result, singleness in Western secular culture has become a real and viable option because it represents the ultimate expression of self-autonomy. It's the freedom to do whatever I want, with whomever I want, whenever I want. It's the freedom to progress in my career without the constraints of another bearing me down. It's the freedom to use my time and my money for things that make me happy. It's the freedom to be me. In the West, being single in order to meet your individual needs and desires is seen as a societal good. But this is not the story that the Bible describes. Now, added to this is the post-Christian understanding of sex and sexuality in Western culture. Here's what I mean. Back in the day, with the influence of Christianity and traditional views of sex and marriage, There was this underlying assumption that it was better to marry than to burn with lust and have sex out of wedlock. It went something like, hey, you're not perfect, but you're not bad, so let's get married. In the past, sex was almost exclusively seen as taking place within the confines of marriage. So if you wanted to have sex, you got married. But now the reality is that you no longer need to get married to have sex. In the West, sex has been disconnected from marriage, and indeed, it's been disconnected from its immediate consequences. Now sex is just play for adults. Sexual desires are an appetite, and we all have them, so surely we should all be participating. The only thing required in order to have sex today is consent. The Western idea is that to be truly human and to be truly alive is to express yourself fully, including in sex and sexuality. More than that, the West makes an idol of sexual fulfillment, the idea that sex will satisfy us, that sex will meet all of our needs and desires, that sex and sex alone will provide us with deep contentment, and that contentment that we desire. And therefore, Christian singleness 
sexual abstinence or not having sex as an unmarried person is looked down upon. It's seen as a sad and dangerous form of self-denial because to deny yourself sexually is to restrict yourself. To deny yourself sexually is to deny a fundamental part of who you are. To deny yourself sexually is to not truly be alive. Scholars point out that movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin are comedies in our society. Because the notion of getting to be the age of 40 and never having had sex is so absurd to many in our culture that it's laughable. Here, singleness, and in particular Christian singleness, characterized by abstinence, is viewed as outdated, unnecessary, and simply missing out. But this is not the story that the Bible describes. This is the progressive view. And given the kind of society that we live in right now, Keller notes that actually many people today are trapped in the worst of both of these idolatries, where they're hating themselves for being single, feeling the pressure and shame of singleness from traditional cultures, while at the same time they're sleeping around, embracing the so-called self-indulgence and sexual fulfillment from progressive cultures. But they're stuck in both and not fulfilled by either. And in the midst of this, all this confusion and craziness, a biblical vision of singleness and sexuality offers immediate hope. Please don't overlook these. Jesus Christ was single. Yeah, but he was got enough of that heretical philosophy. He was fully God and fully man, a great high priest who's able to empathize with us in our weaknesses who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus, as the greatest man to ever live, our Lord and Savior while on earth, chose not to marry. And yet he was a fully functioning, deeply happy, joyful human being. Jesus, as the archetype for all humanity, proved that you don't have to be married to be fulfilled. Or take Paul, the greatest missionary the world has ever known. He was single. Even though he acknowledged the beauty and sanctity of marriage, even though he was aware of romantic attraction and sexual desire, Paul was so compelled by Jesus, the beauty of his gospel, the scandal of his grace, the glory of his kingdom, that he chose singleness. Paul, not out of some sort of harsh self-denial, but out of this beautiful, deep contentment in his Savior, the Son of God, chose to be single. Lastly, in Roman culture at the time, you basically had no status in society without a spouse. And yet, what do we see in the early church? In the early church, single people are welcomed in. They're loved and honored. In the early church, single people were seen, heard, and cared for. They were not pressured into marriage. They're not looked down as somehow lesser, deficient, or pitiful. No. They were enough. In the early church, for Paul and for Jesus, singleness was a good, sufficient, and fulfilling way to live your life. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say, if you can accept singleness, you should. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 19? And we can read together from verse 1. It'll be up on the screen. When Jesus had finished saying these things, He left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. 
Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For they are eunuchs who were born that way, and they are, are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and they are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So Jesus' teaching on singleness here takes place within the broader context of his teaching on marriage and divorce. And after a back and forth debate with the Pharisees on the validity of divorce and the nature and purpose of marriage in verses 1 to 9, Jesus' disciples enter the conversation. In response to hearing Jesus' high view of marriage and his sobering teaching on divorce, his closest friends and followers rather ironically say to him in verse 10, well, if that's the case, it's better not to marry. And I think it's best to understand this as an instinctive reaction rather than a well-thought-out response. Because in Jewish society at that time, the possibility of remaining celibate, in other words, unmarried and sexually inactive, was not a recognized option. And as ironic as the disciples' words may have been intended to be, Jesus takes them seriously and shockingly says that they're right. And to do so, Jesus uses the striking and provocative image of a eunuch, namely someone who's been castrated or who is without genitalia. In verse 12, Jesus identifies three kinds of eunuchs. Firstly, there are people who are born eunuchs. By this, Jesus is referring to people who are intersex. Are, these are people who are born with reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't fit the boxes of male or female and are born with a combination of male and female biological traits. Here, Jesus has an awareness of sexual minorities. And so he says, there are eunuchs who are born that way. Secondly, there are people who are made into eunuchs by others. By this, Jesus is referring to people who were castrated. Now, this, was a, this practice was a form of imperial punishment, and it was commonly done to slaves and servants who worked in royal courts, so they weren't able to act inappropriately amongst the royal family. Castration, however, also served political means, where people would willingly become a eunuch in order to dedicate their lives to serve in places of power. And so Jesus says they are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. Lastly, according to Jesus, there are people who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. By this, he is referring to people who don't physically castrate themselves, but who choose not to have sex, who choose not to have a spouse, and who choose not to have offspring for the sake of serving God. And to the disciples' absolute shock and amazement, 
Jesus says, the one who can accept this should accept it. Now, this was revolutionary. There was no parallel view of eunuchs in all of Greco-Roman society. In Roman culture, eunuchs had no status because they didn't have a spouse. The idea was that if you were a single person, you were a burden on society and you were an embarrassment to yourself. There was no honor without family. There was no legacy unless you had heirs. And therefore, to be a eunuch meant that you were an outcast in Roman society. The Greeks of Jesus' day, with their obsession of the human form and physical body, viewed eunuchs with disgust. Their bodies were disfigured, mutilated, and broken, and therefore, according to the Greeks, not beautiful, not worthy, not truly human. In particular, male eunuchs in this context were seen as less than masculine, as effeminate, and didn't thrive in a patriarchal society. And therefore, to be a eunuch meant that you were of a lower class in Greek culture. Lastly, what was the Jewish vision of eunuchs at the time of Jesus? In short, they had no vision for them. The Jewish understanding of salvation, blessing, and participation in the covenant people of God in the Old Testament was a vision of land, the promise of tribal land given to you, as well as a vision of family, the promise of offspring given to you. And therefore, if you had land and if you had family, then by deduction you were living under the visible blessings of God in the Old Testament. Family was everything. Therefore, marriage was a command in Jewish tradition and celibacy was deplored amongst Jewish communities. Eunuchs, given the very fact that they were eunuchs, couldn't have a family. And therefore, in the Jewish view, they were excluded from covenant blessings and from participating in worship with the people of God. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy actually says it like this. Those with crushed testicles or have been severed cannot participate in covenant worship. It also says that animals in this condition cannot be offered as sacrifices on the altar. And therefore, to be a eunuch meant that you were not acknowledged. You were not seen. You were not blessed by God. To be a eunuch meant that you were excluded from the people of God in the Jewish tradition. Now, it's into these very cultural contexts that Jesus now says, there can be people who choose to live like eunuchs, for the sake of the kingdom of God. In fact, the one who can accept this should accept it. In other words, living like a eunuch, getting married, not having kids, not having sex, is not only allowed in Jesus' community, it's actually celebrated and encouraged. It was revolutionary then, and it's still revolutionary now. I'd love to point out that there's actually a beautiful tr uh, progression in the biblical view of eunuchs in the scriptures. Because Jesus' words here are actually referring back to a prophecy in the Old Testament. They refer, they're recorded in the book of Isaiah, where God says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not, shall not be cut off. Here in Isaiah 56, the eunuch is now blessed in his faithfulness to the Lord. 
He's blessed because he has an eternal inheritance in the temple of God, independent of children or family. Here, the eunuch is a model of one lacking physical family, yet being still fully blessed by God and welcomed into God's family. He's completely sufficient to serve the Lord and bear fruit in his kingdom. Here, the despised eunuch is redeemed. He's no longer a symbol of reproach and disgust and disgrace. Rather, he's a positive model of undistracted, unrestricted service to God. And according to Isaiah, eunuchs in the kingdom of God are welcomed, celebrated, and blessed. Now fast forward to the book of Acts, and you see a case study of this taking place in the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I wonder if you remember the story. Philip has this encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading through the book of Isaiah. Now running over to the eunuch's chariot, Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? To which the eunuch replies, how can I, unless someone guides me? And with that, Philip hops up onto the chariot and shares the good news, the gospel of Jesus with him. And do you remember what happens next? As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And I think what the eunuch is saying here is, Look, Philip, I've studied the Old Testament, but I'm a eunuch. Am I welcome to participate in the covenant life of the people of God? Am I welcomed into the family of God? And what does Philip say? Nothing will hinder you. Welcome to the family of God. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Once excluded, now eunuchs are welcomed into the people of God. Once pitied, now eunuchs are celebrated. Once despised, now eunuchs are held up as the model of Jesus' disciples to follow. There are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, the one who, should, who can accept this should accept it. And as a result, scholars have noted that Christianity was the very first religion or worldview that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. The very first in history. But why? Because Jesus himself was the ultimate display and celebration of singleness. Jesus chose to live like a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was single, he never married, he never had kids, he never had sex, and yet he was content, he was satisfied, he was whole. The creator and sustainer of marriage and sex didn't feel like it was necessary to get married and have sex while he was here on earth in order to display what perfect humanity looks like. In the life of Jesus, we see the opportunities that singleness can bring. Constant open access to his Father in heaven for all of his physical and spiritual and emotional needs. Deep, authentic, and intimate friendships with his disciples. Rich, wide communities of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters in the faith. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see the idolatries of marriage and singleness in our cultures paid for in full. The shame, confusion, and pain of singleness in traditional cultures wiped away. And in its place, the honor, dignity, and worth of being a single son and daughter of God. The selfishness, 
promiscuity and indulgence of a progressive cultures covered in Jesus' blood. And in its place, selflessness, purity, and contentment that comes from being a single who is fully known, yet fully loved by God. In the life of Jesus, we see that marriage, children, and sex are good and godly, but not essential. They can never truly meet all our needs. They can never truly satisfy all our desires. They can never truly bring rest to our restless hearts. Our hearts are restless whether we're single or married until we, find, until we can find our rest in Jesus. So in short, what is the biblical view of singleness and sexuality? One, singleness is valid. It's a good, sufficient, and fulfilling way to live your life. Two, but singleness doesn't mean, does mean saying no to sex. Sex in Scripture is confined to the covenant of marriage. But three, with that said, Jesus doesn't think that you have lost out on anything if you remain single. Singleness is uniquely designed to showcase the sufficiency and superiority of God. Because singles are called to find in God what those who are married often find in one another. Those who are called to marriage often find in their spouses love, affirmation, security, comfort, companionship, and intimacy, amongst other things. For those who are single, however, having a sense of these things is often less certain or immediate. And this requires them to depend on God in a greater way for the fulfillment of such needs and desires. Singleness points in a unique way to the truth that all our needs and desires are found ultimately in Christ alone. Sam Albury says like this, if marriage shows the shape of the gospel, the idea of a life laid down for another, singleness shows us its sufficiency, that God is indeed enough. The one who can accept this should accept it. And to end our time together, I'd like to share some brief practical implications. To those of you here today who are single, I've mentioned this again and again, but let me say it one more time. Your singleness is enough. My prayer is that you would find your contentment, your satisfaction, your security, and your rest in Jesus. That you would know him as good, trustworthy, and a generous giver of good gifts. That you would lie, rely on his grace and his strength in your weakness and needs. And that you would know that he is always with you. My prayer is that you would find your identity in Christ, not in your relational status or sexual fulfillment. My prayer is that you would find a safe, affirming, and loving community in this church that you'd be able to lean on your brothers and sisters in Christ for help, that you'd be brave enough to be honest with us, and that you'd help us to grow to be a better reflection of the people of God. Secondly, as a Christian single in our culture, filled with many struggles and temptations, can I ask you please, please don't compromise relationally out of lust or loneliness. Please don't compromise. Recognize that your deepest and strongest needs and desires can only be satisfied in Jesus. That only he is enough. Not sex, not relationships, not marriage, not children. 
Jesus is enough for me and for you. Lastly, if you are single, I hope that you can take the time and space to consider Jesus' specific call to your singleness. And as you do, would you get a vision for your singleness? Rather than seeing it as something that you're subjected to, see it as a God-given opportunity with endless beautiful possibilities. Get a vision of your singleness. Do you have this for yourself? If these unmarried moments of your life are not spent in passionate pursuit of your maker, they will often be marked by a sense of aimlessness and frustration. What could it look like to say, I don't know how long this season of singleness might last, but what I do know is that this is a season for the Lord. Use your singleness to simply be with Jesus, in his word, in prayer, in his presence, as long and as often as possible. Do you know that Jesus longs to know you more deeply? He longs for more intimacy with you. He longs to reveal himself to you, to win your love, So why not devote your time and energy as a single person to simply being with Jesus with an undistracted, unhurried, and undivided heart? Use your singleness to make a real difference in our communities. Do you have a cause that you intentionally, passionately, and sacrificially live for? What breaks your heart? What specific area of the world's brokenness is Jesus calling you to address? Let God use you in your singleness to start making a significant difference in our valley, in our church, and in the world. Lastly, use your singleness to discover who you really are, to discover your gifts, your callings, and your preferences with Jesus' help. Soren Kierkegaard once said, now with God's help, I shall become myself. Singleness gives you the time and space to have a deep sense of self-awareness, a real discovery as to who you really are. My single brother and sister, this church needs you. It needs your gifts. It needs your leadership. It needs your passion. This world needs you. It It needs you to bring your gifts to its brokenness. It needs you to bring your creativity to its problems and to see God's will be done in our valley as it is in heaven. We need single people in our community with a vision of their singleness for the glory of God. The one who can accept this should accept it. To the church, which if we're honest has often often been biased heavily towards married people. We have to take Jesus' words here seriously and actually start living as the new family of God. The church needs to be a place where single people can actually thrive. We need to affirm the dignity of humanity and not just the dignity of marriage. We need to create real opportunities and leadership for single people so that they can rise to the highest levels of participation in the body of Christ. And we need to realize that Jesus said that the family that is first to me is not my natural family, but it's the ones who love me and who obey me. Married couples, what could it look like to come alongside, know and love single people in our community? 
What could it look like to welcome single people into your home, around your supper table, to get to know your family? What could it look like to have single people over for meals? What could it look like to have single people go away with your families on holiday? Married couples, what could it look like to affirm, serve, and celebrate the singles God has placed in your life? What does the true family of God look like at Common Ground South Penn? It looks like fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, children, marrieds, and singles in a loving, Christ-like community filled with commitment and care for the glory of God. The biblical vision of singleness and sexuality is actually a part of God's greater vision for the family of God to be a community whose ultimate lover, ultimate comfort, and ultimate purpose is God himself. The church who can accept this should accept it. I'm going to ask Luke and Lauren to come up and pray for us. Right, we're going to pray, and uh, we want to take a moment to pray for our brothers and sisters that are single amongst us, and we're not going to ask you to stand. Let's just, um, let's just close our eyes. We're going to pray. Father, thank you so much for every single man, woman, and child that you've added to our family. Thank you that each person has a place, and we celebrate them. Father, thank you that our identity is foremost in you as sons and daughters of the Most High. Our, our identity rests in you before it rests in our married status. And so, Father, as a family, as a church family, we want to, would you lead us in loving each other and finding a place for each person in our family? God, I pray for, for just a, a boldness um, for those amongst us when we're feeling lonely to to move towards each other. We're giving permission, Jesus, in our family to say, hey, when I'm feeling lonely, when I want to be included, I'm putting my hand up. I'm moving towards you. And as families, I want us to, as, as married people, God, help us to, to be inclusive. Help us to move towards those and make space around, as James said, around our dinner tables, in our, in our normal routines. Father, help us to honor each other Yeah, Lord Jesus, we want to recognize this morning the unique challenges of every single person here today. God, I pray that you would meet them in their place of, uh, of need, Christ. Whether, whether, whatever it is, Lord Jesus, their unique struggles, uh, different stages of life, different thoughts that are happening in minds. God, I pray that your nearness to them, that is that, that quote from Sam Albury, that in the gospel that would find Christ your sufficiency, that Jesus, you truly are enough, that Jesus plus nothing really does equal everything. And that they would be able to find that place of wholeness in you, Christ, that would evidence your glory, Jesus. I pray for joy. I pray for peace, Lord Jesus. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would undermine the lies of the enemy that have come through our culture, where... Um, 
where there's so much spoken about uh, your best life now, you, everything's about you and your desires and your hopes and your wants. Jesus, I pray that you would, 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 would get to the deepest part of our beings this morning, Lord Jesus, and that you would give us a vision for others, a vision for a life lived in, your, in service of your kingdom, Christ, a life full of meaning, a life full of purpose, a life that makes a difference in the greater world, Lord Jesus. I pray too, Lord Jesus, you would undermine the lies that say that uh, life will only happen then, that I'm living some kind of subpar existence. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak a vision of a Christ-centered Christ-fulfilled life, Lord Jesus, and that you would make that real, Lord Jesus. I ask too for us as a church, Jesus, that you would break us out of this nuclear family siloed existence that our Western culture has conditioned us and groomed us to think in Jesus, and that we would start to become the kind of place where single people, believers and not yet, would find, uh, find acceptance and would find belonging, Lord Jesus, and would find fulfillment in incredible brother and sister relationships. I thank you, Jesus, uh, for, for when you said, greater love is no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends, that there would be a friendship love that would be so... Um, commonplace in our family, Jesus, that no one would be lonely, Christ. I pray that you would cause us to open our hearts to live toward the true permanent reality of heaven, Jesus, where we're a family, Lord Jesus, as your people, and everyone has a legitimate place, that we would be a foretaste of that ultimate family, that we will be in heaven, Jesus. And so break us free as a church, Lord Jesus. Shake us out of our selfishness. Open our eyes to see others, Lord Jesus, and to move toward each other in family, Christ. We want to be a community of, different, of, of difference than our society, Lord Jesus. And so, Christ, we trust you for that, Jesus. We stand and worship together.